welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad that you're joining us again today. Today, well, what do you think we would be talking about after an evening like last night, November 8th, 2016, the election of the century, if you will, in many, many ways. So tonight, we are holding an enlightened election and politics roundtable on a better world because we are here in service to creating a better world. And one of the ways to do that in this context is to deconstruct and come to understand in greater depth what happened yesterday and get a greater sense of it and uh, see ultimately what caused the change that now everyone worldwide considers to be a major shock to our system and to pick the pieces up and see how we can assemble them in some kind of creative, constructive way to carry on the work at hand of building a new society, a better world, a a way that we can live in peace and justice and sustainability with each other, which is, uh, you know, the, the point of our species. So to carry on this Enlightenment politics roundtable today, I have invited a few of my colleagues, interestingly all from the FIONS world, Friends of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and virtually all of them have been on with me before on A Better World, especially Rick Ulfick, who's been on a few times because of his beautiful work with uh, We the World, and every year we have been having Rick on with a series of the people who have been speaking for the Global, uh, Global Unity Project that he has, 11 Days of Global Unity, which is just a a beautiful contribution. So tonight we will be joined by Dr. Ron Friedman, by Robert Levine and Rick, and we'll see if we might be also joined perhaps a little later by Kurt Johnson. Dr. Kurt Johnson was also invited on. Everyone is having their own respective responses and reactions to what has occurred yesterday, which, as mentioned, has been a bit of a shock to the collective global nervous system, and we are all in our own ways seeking to adjust to this and uh, adapt. That's our job as humans, adaptive survivalists, and in this space we also want to thrive, of course. So with that said, I want to invite to speak our various uh, guests here this evening on the roundtable and begin to with just a, an honest and authentic reaction to what we all individually experienced and then we'll start to build from there. So Dr. Ron Friedman, are you on with us? I am. Can you hear me? I can hear you just fine. Absolutely. Welcome Hello, Mitchell. to you, Robert and Rick, and it's a pleasure to have you. So Ron, tell me, we were all gathered at a beautiful event just this past Sunday in honor of Dr. Edgar Mitchell uh, with our FIONS group 
and had a beautiful, heartwarming event that also involved and engaged the subject of this election from as conscious a point of view as we could discuss. So we're now days later, and uh, where are you? What What's shown up inside you as you've been uh, metabolizing these events and uh, results? Ron? Uh, I, I, oh, you're speaking to me. Yeah. Yes. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly... I'll put you on the uh, spot first. <laughs> no, that's fine. I mean, there's so much to say about this. I'm definitely one of the shock groups. I stayed up till about 1.30 watching the evolution uh, of the of the shock wave of this uh, tsunami of electoral yes. votes, and uh, I'll tell you something strange. As I was listening to this, I was finding something inside me that was actually allied with uh, what was happening in the Republican side with Donald mm-hmm. Trump. Uh, as much as I didn't vote for him. I voted for yeah. Hillary, uh, and it was so interesting to watch this part. You know, this voice inside that uh, I don't think I let it fully into the daylight, but was excited, and it wanted the the adventure of the unknown that he would bring. Now, I have to say that that was not that was a, a still voice. I did not let it come to fruition to express itself mm-hmm. fully as I was rooting for Hillary Clinton. So, which, yes. incidentally, uh, like many people, I did with some difficulty. But anyway, it was interesting to watch what is this inside us that craves and that has its own agenda, has its own need for entertainment, excitement, and... Um, Things being very, very different. So that was a very interesting uh, part of myself to yeah. watch. Right. <clears throat> How would you describe a little bit more of the alignments that you felt you were kind of uh, privately experiencing with the Republican platform? Well, um, I, I think I think that, as you know, one of the main themes of um, the Republican agenda was change, the word change, which is what Obama mm-hmm. also used in 2008. And, you yep. you know, people do not ask, what kind of change are we really talking about? And that's a very important question. Yes, because in watching this in myself, this this change is not clearly identified. It's a kind of excitement. It's a kind of a letting go and so I think that um, I joined with many people who were entrapped by this voice that wanted change but didn't really know what it meant by that. Certainly if you say, mm-hmm. well, I want to, to overthrow the government or I want a new, you know, new government or I want to throw out the Congress or so on, I mean – that could be a component, but that's not enough. I mean, if I'm going to vote for change, I better know what I'm asking for. And I think that remained not well-defined 
inside myself, and I think in the people, many of the people who voted for Trump. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Ron. And it reminds me also of even 2008 during the Obama uh, candidacy. A lot of what change was wasn't very well defined then either. It was somewhat amorphous. And it reminds me of this uh, feature of the human brain and mind that seek novelty. And we don't know what it is, but we seek some form of adventure. And uh, I heard very interestingly on uh, Democracy Now!, Amy Goodman's coverage last night of the election results, Alan Nairn, a longtime journalist and activist, said something akin to what you were saying, that with uh, Hillary Clinton's insistence of her basic continuity of the Obama administration, that did not provide any kind of real sustenance or excitement, as you're suggesting, to people. And the grass is always a little greener on the other side. And some of the unpredictability, I think, that Trump brought to the table also is one of the factors. And she has even been known to be boring. And it was a bit, you know, funny about it in one of the last uh, debates, kind of making, poking a little fun at herself about that. And people do want and thrive on some sense of novelty, some sense of change. So I, I appreciate, I appreciate the point. Robert Levine, you, um, we missed you on Sunday. Let me just tell you first of all, but I'm very glad you're Thank able you, to Mitchell. take a little time and join us today. Absolutely. Yeah, now, yeah, I know that yeah, you're well, a yogi, and you spend a good amount of time also reviewing and reflecting on the body politic, as well as, you know, our own human yogic bodies. Uh, what do you think? What do you make of what happened last night? Well, when I, as with Ron, as with most of the people we know, and most of the people in the world, there was that initial shock. Though we'd heard... Um, various experts saying that Trump could win, and there are various um, political scientists model which called for a Trump win. We were hearing all over, Nate Silver, the New York Times, um, and every newscast, every pundit saying that, saying that Hillary Clinton would win. So, you know, I expected that to happen, and watching television, watching the returns, and getting very nervous, and then seeing things really turn towards Trump. Um, I waited until I saw she was going to lose Pennsylvania and decided I really can't watch anymore. I'm going to go to bed, you know, fully expecting that I'd wake up and find that Donald Trump had won. And, of course, it's an extremely close election. Our own our system makes it a little different where he won the electoral vote and she won the popular vote. But so – at first being upset, a bit distressed that we were having President Trump, and I realized that I was a bit blind in this moment. You know, my background is as a political scientist. I have a master's, was working on my doctorate. Um, I've you know, written on politics and so on. And I had to step back 
I had to step back, take a moment, and then become non-attached. What was actually happening here? What was my reaction? Was my reaction because I felt Hillary Clinton was going to be a transformational president? Or, you know, so, which wasn't the case. I think if I would have rather have had, as so many of us, another option. Was, it, was I being motivated by fear of Donald Trump? And that was really the guiding factor. So by taking a step back, becoming non-attached, and only when we become non-attached can we let our true feelings, our true thoughts come out. I started to understand this in a very different way. I allowed my mind to open and try to begin to understand this. And a whole lot of pieces started coming into play that though we're all in shock because of the expectation, because of the attachment of a Hillary Clinton win, a win by Trump isn't really that surprising. Trump, as with so many people, he really represents the same system that Hillary is part of. He is a, an extreme of that system. He's on an extreme edge of that system, but he is that system. He is, he is embedded in the institutions, is embedded in the mind frame and in the understanding of how our government works, though so he does come off, you know, he does build on one's hate, he does build on fear. But he's also, and there's something the Republicans have always been much better than the Democrats, is really tapping into people's emotions. Because Hillary Clinton was running, you know, as you mentioned before, saying that, you know, I'm a bit boring, I'm a policy wonk. One of the areas the Democrats have truly failed at is really playing to what people feel. Their concerns, in this case, Donald Trump played on the fear, but he very effectively played on the fear. They needed to tap into the body politic, the feelings of the nation, um, where the mindset was going, and to really touch into more than just looking at the system and trying to make some kind of structural political argument. They really kind of had to back off and look at things in, in new ways. And because they're so embedded in the system, they really couldn't. So the positive thing that may come up out of a Trump win is maybe we start to look at power, look at our politics, look at our political system in a new way, really start to question it. Um, Occupy opened the door for us. Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. led us into the door. Um, and now we have to begin to go into the door ourselves and really look at it in a very mindful very yogic way where we don't look at our attachment, we don't look at our biases, but really, looking, but really look at it in a new transformational way. There was this brilliant scholar, Ekbal Ahmed, who I had the pleasure to see a number of years ago at the UN. And he, when questioned about revolutions and that the revolutionary government you know, starts doing the same abuses as the governments in power prior to them, he said power changes are never going to, or a turnover in power is really never going to affect real change. It's going to be the same system that is repeated over and over again. We really need to start to rethink how we understand power and how we would use power and how power would be brought into a society and, then, and in what ways it can be effective. And in this way, we really are being given an opportunity because we are shocked. Though, of course, yes. we maybe shouldn't be, but we are shocked, and that starts to open up the mind. Yes, absolutely. 
Good points, good points. I, I appreciate them. A shock is a very interesting thing. And when people are dealt a blow, you know, in some cases, there could even be uh, some mini trauma occurring. And that is a wake-up call, as you're suggesting. So uh, we'll, we'll come back to this idea shortly. Uh, I want to bring Rick Olfick in. Robert, thank you very much for that, for your sharing here. Rick, I know you've been keeping your finger on the pulse for a long time, and so what do you think of this uh, new new gift to uh, the American people? <laughs> right. Well, I agree that it's uh, def- definitely a wake-up call, and I'm looking at it as a call to action as well. Uh, and I have some other ideas about it. Uh, you know, I'm... Uh, you know, Rick Ulfick, founder of We the World and the We Campaign at We.net. So for me, it's all about we. And yet, during the election campaign, many in the U.S. and around the world really have moved away from this all-inclusive sense of we, in which the health and well-being of every member of society is considered essential. You know what I'm saying, right? So, yes. um, so I think there's uh, an important consideration of that with regard to what happened with Donald Trump. Uh, why has it been so easy to move so many people in this angry, often racist and disconnected direction? So my sense is that a big part of it is because so many people's economic needs have not been met. Inequality is now at, a, at what you could call uh, catastrophic levels. People are living in an economic pressure cooker. And under these conditions, I think it's very easy for someone like Trump to convince many people to blame immigrants, refugees, Muslims, blacks, even women, for taking jobs and increasing their, their economic and other insecurities. So moving forward, um, what I'm doing, what We the World is doing, and what the WE campaign is focusing on is to create unprecedented cooperation and coordination between grassroots social change Organizations, So together, we can begin to build the public and political support that's needed to start to meet people's needs. Solutions. I love it. We're talking about yeah. all kinds of solutions, and all the while, of course, promoting the idea of we and the common good, where no one and no form of life is expendable so yes uh so that's for me this is the good news you know um people are looking at this and um and they're looking at it as a wake-up call so i say to anyone listening to this if you've been on the sidelines of activism we Mm. need you now go to Mm -hmm. we.net or any of the, the organizations that are represented tonight, uh, and we'll put you right to work with solutions 
to, to meet people's needs. We have solutions like the Renewable Energy Media Campaign and Movement for uh, a transition to 100% renewable non-polluting energy systems, and we can talk about all kinds of solutions later, but but I I would love to see people get going. I galvanized. I got that galvanized. Yeah, I I got that yeah. in the in the mid 90s uh, during the time of Newt Gingrich. I got galvanized, uh, yes. and that's when I started uh, becoming like a full time activist after being a full time musician. But yeah. anyway, there you go. And I know you from back then, for crying out loud. In reality, yeah. we were actively involved in the season for nonviolence, 95, 96, I think 96, 1996, yep. with the United Nations and the uh, Church Center and honoring Gandhi and Martin Luther King. And, uh, and we you have know, a small that's nexus of us from then. That's right. And Diane we're Williams, coming up Deborah to the 20-year 20, the, the 20 uh, anniversary of that is coming up. I've already been contacted oh, about yes, that. yes, of course, of course. It's remarkable, remarkable. Yeah. So thank you, Rick. This, these points yeah. about economic justice as one of the uh, kind of substrates of what fed the Trump phenomenon, uh, I think, is uh, is a very good one, very real one. And I, to me, the irony couldn't be greater because, to me, uh, the issue actually isn't about jobs, even though it appears to be. And the main issue about jobs anyway is that not that they're going across uh, the, uh, the ponds, although that's happening too, obviously, but there's a certain visa, and I'm forgetting the name of it here, that allows the United States government to open up its borders to people to work right here and get trained by the people right here who are then being replaced by the vastly lower-paid professional, oftentimes IT, software program worker. Um, it's uh, the MV1. I'm, I'm forgetting. I'm so sorry. Does anyone remember the name of that visa program that has taken our country in Silicon Valley by storm, both in the uh, Bay Area and Austin and elsewhere? But it's, it's yep. extraordinary right here at home replacement of of uh you know americans but that's another story i think that the main problem one of the biggest problems i should say with the whole employment issue is the advent of an increase of robotics and um, you know we can come back to that yep. but i you know i think that um you know the role of of banks and interest rates and all of that have a big role in all of this. And ironically, as I was starting to say, is the real estate industry, of which Donald Trump is one of the main players. It's, to me, I'll just say, it looks like a chicken and egg thing that I say, though, it is not. That if rents weren't as egregious and onerous as they are. Of course, we all live in the New York tri-state area, but rents are all over way too high, non-commensurate with people's salaries at all, same with mortgages, And but let's just stick with rents. People cannot afford to live the pressure that you were referring to, Rick, the stress 
that is caused in everyone, most everyone, um, except for, you know, the uh, so-called one or so five percent, is extreme, and it puts pressure and stress on the entire system. And it happens that this new president is one of the greatest culprits of that type of uh, issue. I mean, it's just, to me, it's part of the reality TV show rhetoric that he has been purveying. I mean, I personally think it's very funny that both of these two people who are running are both members, card-carrying members of the 1%. They're both very, very wealthy. They have been milking the system forever, yet both of them are talking about helping the uh, the middle class of the United States of America. It's just who the heck are they to be talking about the rest of us? I, I just consider that really rather ironic. But I want to come know. around to another uh, one of the guests that was invited on, uh, our dear friend Kurt Johnson, who is just uh, very, very upset, like the rest of us in many ways, about what happened yesterday. And... Um, that he didn't feel he had anything to really positively contribute. I personally don't believe that. But he did forward an article. Uh, by the way, I had also invited another friend and colleague of ours, uh, Stephen Dynan, who wrote the lovely book, very important book, Sacred America, Sacred World, but he was uh, flying and he just wouldn't, wasn't able to join us. Otherwise, he'd be part of our roundtable too. But Kurt sent a few of us a, uh, an article this afternoon, which I feel does bear some value uh, relative to this Trump phenomenon, and I'd like to hear what you all have to say about it. But in in short, uh, it's really looking at the subject of whiteness, of white identity, and the demographic of the primary um, Trump supporter. And this whole phenomenon was mirrored in the Brexit vote in the UK and the issues at hand there regarding immigration. But deeper cut than that is who are we as white privileged people in our respective countries of the UK, of uh, United States of America? We, in this case, all of us on this roundtable, have enjoyed a certain privilege. And there are many other people who call themselves white uh, are feeling that privilege being denied them and, in a sense, just um, kind of uh, ebbing away at the shift in demographics in our country. And that Trump represents a kind of a, a last hurrah, a last claim to that identity and, if you would, its, um, its preciousness or, in some people's minds, its specialness and sacredness. And in watching the shifting sands, if you will, Trump was the guy who was touching in on this very catalytic energy. And that's what led him to this underlying popularity that certainly the media didn't pick up on or wasn't willing to give voice to. 
or actually even many of the pollers, pollsters. So at this point, you know, um, uh, anyone can yeah. jump in here. Yeah. 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 Um, if I may, this is actually, Please. I think, Robert. a variation. This is Robert. Yes, yeah, sorry. This is actually a variation on a very American theme. If we, you know, if we go through our through our history, there have been uprisings of this of this sort of white fear. There was the Know yeah. Nothing um, movement yeah. in the 1800s. There was the anti-immigrant movement, which led to bans on the entry of many immigrant groups into this country, with the Chinese Exclusion Act, with the National um, with the National um, Origins Act, and these were uh, measures that were supported by both um, parties to a point where going back in the 1920s, one of the major forces in the Democratic Party from the 20s and for many years was the KKK. So it's a theme yeah. that, that has been with us. But the major difference is, and because I took a look at the article Kurt sent, is that yeah. there's been a transformation. Yeah. Because in the past, um, you know, it, it had different dimensions, different fears, it had other um, bases, but, it, but in the now the American scene is changing. Our nation is changing drastically. And that's, of course, a positive thing. And it, the diversity is going to make this country, should it, um, sh um, should it still exist in, um, in the future, a much better, a much stronger place. But as with any change, there are always people that are going to have, that are always going to fear it. And demagogues like Trump um, are going to exploit that um, demagoguery. So this is a moment of change where suddenly there is a backlash among the quote-unquote white um, population that has seen the country change, that's seen the power shift. And it was exacerbated by the fact that we had our first African-American um, president. And, of course, we know yes, the role exactly. Trump played in the opposition um, to Obama. So it's just – it's sort of a – it's sort of a trend that has been a very American trend has kind of hit its peak because of where we are in the world scene, where we are in our history. And it's both frightening and fascinating because when we get through this, when we can emerge from this, um, it's going to be very, very um, powerful. And the work we all do, the work Rick is doing in organizing in the we, the focus on the we is going to be our next step. That's our transformation. That's where we go from here. The Democratic Party is going to have to change. The last 30 years of the DLC and this very conservative um, Democratic Party, that party is now dead. If the Democrats mm -hmm. are to survive, it's got to be in some way, it's got to be a we party. If it's going to still be effective, it's going to have anything uh, meaningful to say to the American um, population. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so... That's a, yeah. all a very good point. We we have this phenomenon, and it's largely, in my worldview, a psychological one, in which uh, <clears throat> people just uh, go to their reptilian brain, if you will, where fear lives and dominates. And that's where they receive some sense of solace and collectivity with others who are feeling encroached upon, feeling like their lives, livelihood is being taken away, their culture, their identity, their sense of self. And they therefore project outward their animosity and make the other the enemy. And that's 
certainly one of the phenomena that we're witnessing here with all of this and in the article that Kurt brought forward. I think there's a lot of validity. Yeah. Ron. So, Ron um, uh, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I think what's yeah. interesting uh, in what uh, is being pointed to here is the fact of the immigration crisis. If you really look at this uh, from a <laughs> and it's not easy, but from a more positive point of view at some distance, yeah. you could say that immigration is an evolutionary effort to break down national boundaries. Yes. That yes, yes. is, I mean, looking at it that way and the reaction to it, which is what is being talked about, which is perhaps inevitable, the reptilian brain or, or you know, this unexamined nationalism, which is also the source of individual anxiety. But in a way, immigration is meant to bring in, to um, create an amalgam of humanity. And there will be, and there is this expected reaction to what I think is a tremendous evolutionary movement. Mm. I like that point, and I'd actually like to weigh in a little bit on, uh, you know, I asked everyone their reaction to this uh, election result, and uh, I didn't weigh in myself yet, but I will, because unlike many, I'm in the small minority, way too small, by the way, who voted for the Green Party, Dr. Jill Stein, and one or two of the other candidates uh, that were on the ballot in New York State. Green Party, and uh, I know that some people were mad at me because they thought I should be voting for Hillary, but very truly, I consider, as was being said by this group earlier, uh, that Hillary and Trump are actually way closer together than either of them is to Jill Stein, who I've had on this show a number of times over the past several years, actually, starting in 2012. And I think this is notable, I do, that they, the, the, the Trump Clintonians, are really, I mean, they go to each other's weddings, right? They kind of hang out with each other. They're uh, in the multi-multi-hundred million dollar, or he claims billion dollar class, or the Bill Clinton Foundation, they're in that rare space of among the very wealthiest in the world. And yet, uh, Jill Stein is over here really speaking about the people and helping deal with climate change and well, one of them, Trump, says it's a Chinese hoax. And Hillary Clinton, while she speaks a little bit about climate change here and there, also had some very interesting choice words about some people that were, are anti-fracking and were demonstrating against fracking. And she told them, quote, unquote, go get a life. So I can't be the deep environmentalist that I am and being actively engaged in any number of different renewable energy projects uh, for years. Um, 
I can't say that I feel altogether good about having, you know, about voting for Hillary, and I did not. I see her as actually a lot of the problem. Um, And so I'll just say this, that even though I was as shocked as anybody to watch those results accruing last night on behalf of Trump, my general, you know, energy field was rooting under these circumstances for Hillary not major, but certainly I was thinking our country would have, a, we progressives would have more voice in a Clinton administration than a Trump administration. And that's really kind of what I was looking at. But, and I went to bed sick. <laughs> you know, I couldn't watch it till 1 o'clock. And we went to bed earlier than that. Um, I think I had a nightmare or two as the night wore on. But in the morning, honestly, this morning, I felt a certain, when I saw his kind of acceptance speech and I felt it was conciliatory, um, I remembered this, and I've actually said this a number of times. Donald Trump has been a lifelong Democrat. It's only been in the last few years when he started to get politically active that he became a Republican. Donald Trump was pro-choice for most of his adult life until relatively recently, again, the last few years, when he decided that wasn't his position. Hillary Clinton, well, I'll put it this way, and then I want to hear what all of you have to say. Back in the 60s, there was a great shot on Facebook of Bernie Sanders walking on the streets of Chicago. We went to University of Chicago with, as part of the civil rights movement, doing everything he could to um, honor the black vote and the oppression of blacks in our country. And right next to, juxtaposed with that photograph of Bernie on the streets as a young activist, civil rights activist, was Hillary Clinton standing next to Goldwater, one of the great arch-conservatives Republicans of our nation. And that's what she was doing at the same time frame. So just a moment of reality, folks. I just wanted to bring that to bear. Your thoughts, Rick? Yeah, so Rick here. Um, uh, and I, uh, I wanted to go back to uh, some of the things that were talked about in terms of whiteness and the backlash and all of that. Um, I think it's important to also talk about generational differences because the, the newer kind of Internet generation is much more uh, interested in connecting w- with uh, people who are who look differently from them. So yes, uh, this could be a, a generational issue as as well that's going to uh, you know w- begin to work itself out. Um, mm. So I just want to bring that up because uh, that's a very good important. point. Yeah, that's very important. Yeah. Another. Yeah factor in terms of cultural norms is the media 
and I know this is a big conversation, um, yes. but I want to start oh, it, uh, because it. we're yeah. in, in the media, right? So, yes. so for me, uh, the, one of the huge factors is that there has been this crunch for the media, this economic crunch, right, where they, mm-hmm. a lot of their funding uh, models are, are falling by the side because of the Internet and all of that. So if you think about it, the, there, there was this push, in a sense, to, um, to get as much of the political ad funding as possible during yes. the election campaign, and that yes. itself was making up for the fact that that a lot of the, the mainstream media is losing its funding. But then there are all these other aspects of the media that, that this brings into the conversation. For example, the idea that because the, the networks and the main, mainstream media have been given licenses by the public to operate, there is this idea that in exchange that they offer free airtime uh, prior to national elections, um, just yeah. in exchange for their licenses. And wouldn't that have made such a big difference? Because as many of us have heard, you know, um, this quote from the CEO of CBS, uh, Les Moonves, who said early on, uh, because yeah. of what was going on with uh, <clears throat> Donald Trump and the primaries, um, he said, Trump may not be good for America, but he sure is great sure for is CBS. sure is good for CBS. <laughs> right. I yeah. remember. That's it. And there exactly. he said it. He said yeah, it in, it's in public. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's yeah. down to the level of A local rare moment media. of honesty, right? A rare it, moment of honesty. Exactly. But it, it goes right down to the local media who are getting ad buys for all the local uh, can, uh, candidates. So, yeah. um, so if that is one of the reasons why Trump succeeded, the, the media, and then, of course, pushing out all of those kind of de- divisive ideas um, and uh, generalizations about immigrants that were unchallenged very often about their effect on the economy and, and society, you know, um, uh, undocumented immigrants are actually uh, less now coming uh, through the southern border than ever at, at any time in history. Uh, but that, that yes. didn't seem to come through. Um, you know the the media because they were very interested in the sensation. So I just figured I'd mention those things. Oh, I appreciate it. It's a very good point. Yeah. Follow the money trail. Yeah, well, Follow the money trail. Yes. Right. Well, yep. Rick, I'm very glad you did. I'm very glad that you raised the media issue. Over 30 years ago, Neil Postman, wonderful scholar, um, who I had the good fortune to um, meet. Um, his um, theory was that we were blurring the line between entertainment and our politics. And of course, as you do that, politics loses its content and it loses control over who then, um, who then controls the media and then who controls our politics. 
when politics was local, as our founders meant it to be, you had a number of parties that could play within the arena. With money, with it becoming very media-saturated, you really limit the players. And Hillary and Trump are both um, players. They're both part of this elite group, uh, Mitchell, as you mentioned. They're both part of the 1%. So in a sense, it's the choice between which of the oligarchs are we going to select. And yeah. whatever Trump does, um, you know, we have to go beyond that choice of the oligarchs, move to a system which allows more local control, more local involvement, especially we do have the media, you know, we're not so beholden to the major, to the major media um, outlets, though they are trying to take control of the Internet. That's why the battle for, um, for the freedom of the Internet is not only critical in third world countries, it is really critical in our own country. That's yes. how we're going to allow the public to have a strong voice. Do any of you have a comment, Ron, for instance, let me start with you, about what I was saying? I know that most people of our sort of liberal-slash-progressive mindset felt that they should be voting for Hillary, and I'm making a very strong case of why I voted for third party, because in that vote of mine, there was no sense of compromise at all all not one percent no pun intended um and i could wholeheartedly say that what jill stein and the platform of the green party says and their approach toward peace you know representative former kucinich uh kucinich's department of peace also pres former presidential candidate for the democratic party um had said she's for that, she's for not making the arms sales to people who were perpetuating a war in the Middle East and working out a reconciliation and diplomacy and putting a focus on climate change and building a green economy. And she's got the numbers. I mean, many of us have the numbers about how this can work. This is not, this is not mystery. This is real. So... How do you all feel? Because I'm hearing that most people here in this roundtable were really going for Hillary, but knowing you as I do, I can't think but it was done with a heavy heart, and why not have turned toward the third party of Jill Stein and the Green Party? Okay, Any? I'll jump in. Yeah, this is Rick. Please. Um, so I, uh, living in New York City, uh, we have a certain kind of luxury, in a sense, if you want to support the Green Party, because most people will not do that, and by voting for the Green Party uh, can give them some extra percentage points so that they can continue. Uh, yes. So, uh, but what I didn't like uh, uh, and what, I, I don't know if this will ever change, but I don't really like uh, the, the voting strategy of the Green Party where they don't, including Jill, I, I assume, or I've heard, uh, she didn't really say, say about, uh, you know, st 
strategic voting in, in terms of, you know, if you're in a, uh, a state where it could be very close, uh, then it may not be a good idea to vo- vote for the Green Party. Maybe it's impossible for a presidential candidate to say that, but I would like to hear them say that because that that seems more practical and more, um, you know, realistic uh, than just, um, you know, just across the board voting for, for the Green Party. And I do not really accept this idea of equivalence between um, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Uh, Hillary, mm-hmm. for, uh, I think that the media, that was one of the problems with the media, this idea of false equivalence, just because it's uh, Tweedledee and Tweedledum in their eyes, you know, it's yin and yang right. and that's it. It's, I, don't, I don't go for that in this case. Are you, what, uh, because, what media do you feel was perpetuating that idea? I mean, I know Ralph uh, Nader perpetuates that, <laughs> and I'm yeah. Well, uh, well, uh, a lot of the uh, the media was covering Trump dutifully. Uh, I mean, of course, he was sensational, but also um, they didn't really spend very much time, you know, questioning his facts until it was much later. And then, I mean, there were so many things that were over the top um, early on that that I think it would have made more sense for media that was interested in the public interest to actually, mm-hmm. uh, you know, offer facts and and be clear about things rather than just sort of doing this equivalence between them. But also... The, uh, Are you saying that I, you think I, that the media was putting them on the same footing? They were. The media was for a long time. Not not towards the end. Towards the end, uh, the media was starting to uh, begin to, to question uh, the facts uh, that we were hearing. I mean, the, the, the comments in, in, from a factual point of view. Uh, but that uh, in the in qu- quite a bit of the media was was pretty uh, you know pretty tame uh, by you know when when it was comparing them. But the other thing is there are some very strong um, progressive voices who also had that kind of equivalence in there. You know, Ralph Nader, like you said, I think Jill Stein. Yes, I heard her say that. I heard Chris Hedges. Say that they're, yes. you know, they're both, they're both very, you know, and and this that for me disregards the possibility that if if Hillary had gotten gotten in, that she would be much more amenable to what was happening on the street, you know, the movements, um, to move, to go and and finish the vision that that Bernie had, you know, go all the way with Bernie. Oh. Yeah. Um, well, you know, interesting. Yeah, but you, you see, I, so I, I don't, I, I don't, I. What my point was not making equivalence, but I said that I think that that Clinton and Trump are way more similar, not equivalent, but similar 
in contrast to Jill Stein. And I think also, this is going to sound really funny that I'd love to hear you all say, I think Bernie and Trump actually share some things more in common than Bernie did with Hillary. Well, uh, Mitchell, when you... How's that for a little controversy? (laughs) You know, according to one poll I'd heard among the many that were thrown at us, was that a lot of the people who um, who voted for Trump did say their ch- their second choice was Bernie Sanders. Because yeah. in the eyes of a lot of voters, obviously the ones who voted for Trump, they were both seen as the anti-establishment. They were going to change. Correct. They were offering ideas, no matter what you thought of those ideas. So um, in a way, I would they agree. They shared that you know, similar profile, right, psychology. Right. So once you have a lot of similarities, in a sense, Trump and Hillary were both part of the establishment, different sides of it. Um, Rick is right. Had she been elected, she probably would have been more similar in some ways to FDR, be open to social movements that Trump certainly won't be. But they're part of the establishment. But if you're looking for a candidate, you know, that word change was thrown about. And I think a lot of people did vote for um, Trump, because they wanted to see change. Um, Bernie, yeah. um, though I think um, Bernie was about real change, Trump was about, you know, just voicing change. He really wanted um, yeah. power, and he would say whatever yeah. he has to say to get power. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, I've been, for many years, I've been a big proponent of third parties. I think they make our system um, healthier, um, even if they don't go far, even if they don't um, get a lot of votes. It keeps the dialogue open. It keeps the debate open. You know, we fall into the situations where under certain elections, the fear factor, and for me it was the fear of Trump, led me to vote for Hillary while my heart is more with the Green Party. So, you know, our system, the way it's organized, this two larger parties of which you know it's going to be one or the other, tends to siphon off people whose hearts are with the third party. And, of course, the mainstream wants to then blame those third parties you know, and and the yeah. problem isn't the third parties. The problem no. is our our no. mainstream um, system, which really doesn't give us the space for those um, for those third parties to be really part of the system. Uh, there's another. However, point, I want to mention something. I, let me just yeah. say this one thing to that, and then Ron, please please come in. <clears throat> Rick made a good point here, Robert, which is that it was safe in New York State, and that doesn't mean that yeah. I would not have voted for Jill anyway, but it was safe here because this was so clearly a Hillary won state, so that gave us the luxury, and I'll tell you, one of the reasons, or main reason, is that I want the third parties to be recognized on a national scale as increasingly important to support your point, Robert, also, and mine, and just to vote there is a symbolic gesture and a very real gesture to help support the Green Party in the next election round. It's, it's a, more of a visionary and, you could say, long-term vote. It's not for short-term. It's for longer-term potential results. So, Ron, your, your thoughts? Well, I remember how uh, years ago we supported the Natural Law Party, I don't know if any of you yes, remember this. Yeah, me too. Yeah, oh, it was, yeah. It was John Hagelin. John Hagelin, a theoretical physicist, you know, coming <laughs> from training 
by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. That's you know, right. and speaking of meditation and speaking of all the principles of uh, that the Maharishi brought forth, uh, I remember that. And I remember, you know, I think he appeared on two and two presidential elections. And three. of course we voted for him. 1992, 1996, and 2000. I interviewed him several times in 96 yeah. and the year 2000. In fact, he yeah. asked me to run against Hillary in the New yeah. York Senate, <laughs> which, you know, I wasn't going to do. I mean, but. look, I mean, what, what we're really saying is we need representation. We need a voice. Uh, I asked about what happened to Marianne Williamson. I wanted to know. Uh, we need a voice, and it's got to be involvement in the political process. Um, and when you say you were asking about Marianne, you mean in her run in con- in Congre- yes. Congress? Yes. She lost. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I interviewed her. So before. I was a better woman was helping to support her candidacy, but she yeah. lost pretty big. Yeah. So uh, it's a question with the need for a third party uh, is is crucial. I, I think it's essential. And we need a voice. We actually, we need a voice yeah. that stands there and carves a place in the political process. And it needs support and it needs to be presented earlier in, in, the, uh, in the election procedure. So, I mean, that's, that's really what I feel uh, in terms of these third parties. And uh, this is part of the activism that's going to have to follow now. You know, Trump mm-hmm. threw a hand grenade into our entire process in terms of lowering the bar, in terms of questions, in terms of things that had not been said or done before. And that hand grenade, hopefully, will have a very uh, useful outcome. And I think it will. Yes. And I think the activism is called for now. Yeah. So uh, I'm looking forward As to Rick that. Was I think calling also, for appropriately. Yeah. And and I think also uh, that hand grenade raised some questions about changes in the fundamental democratic process. I don't want, I don't yes. want to go into this now. Such as. I mean, this is a, well, we'll just give a little as, indication. Uh, Are you talking about sure. campaign finance? Sure. Why <laughs> is it? Why is it on the democratic side? We had what? How many? How many candidates? Hillary, Bernie, yes. who is supposed to be a useful throwaway, and mm-hmm. then the governor. I, I don't even remember his name. Very handsome O'Malley. man who spoke, O'Malley, O'Malley, who spoke yeah. very O'Malley. reasonably and very quickly yes. disappeared from the scene. And then we yes. hear that the Democratic National Committee has been talking about Hillary as the president for years in advance and preparing. Yes. Now, why are there only three Candidates presented to the public. Yeah, we need a different mechanism to choose candidates to be considered by the public. I feel very strongly about that. But that's one well, example. Well, you know, I good. It's a good point. I I, I agree. But it, it's way worse than that. I mean, that's that's so much worse. Debbie Wasserman Schultz was found to be completely guilty of skewing the. Uh, candidacy for Hillary. I mean, it was black, pardon the expression, black and white, what 
there was uh, really a case, very strong case being made with evidence of collusion between her, the DNC, and the Clinton campaign to knock mm-hmm. him out and talk about the media as Rick was before so appropriately, the media colluded as well. The, he right. was filling up stadiums with tens of thousands of people, and he was getting almost no airtime. She was getting, you know, a handful of people. She was getting more airtime, but everybody wanted to hear the latest escapades of Trump, who was, right. yes, he was filling up stadiums, But you see, you look at that gradation and the injustice in what is supposed to be our public airwaves. I wrote an article for the Huffington Post recently, and one of the points that it made was, how about if we take a look at England that has a six-week, four- to six-week election cycle, and there's no money allowed in the system, and they are all given those running whoever they are, are given equal airtime to present their case to the Brits. And that's that, folks. Why? I mean, this was so insane. What we just went through, essentially a 17-month, you know, election cycle, all for the case of, like Rick was saying before, CNN or CBS and their advertising sales. Why should all of this be on our back? when these are supposed to be our airwaves. I mean, I am, you know, as someone who is in the media, am appalled by the lack of ethics and justice in this situation. That's right. Uh, Rick here again. And um, the whole thing with with Bernie versus Trump, uh, I want to go back to that for a moment. Please. Um, so, so, yes, um, both both of them were calling for change and represented change. And for me, I think an even more important factor is that both of them were speaking to the economic insecurities and disaster, yes. economic disaster that people are facing. And I think that's why... Uh, why so many people were flocking to to them, and why the, some of the same people were flocking to them? Uh, yes. I believe that that Agreed. polls showed that that the uh, that Bernie put up against Trump would have defeated Trump, but yes. he, of course, Bernie did not have a chance. And and oh, this was another. Uh, thing with with regard to Debbie Wasserman Schultz and the uh you know it didn't take WikiLeaks to reveal emails for people uh around the world to realize that that the democratic uh, was party was yeah. was yeah L- look at all of the debates the republicans had like 22 23 Correct. debates uh, and there were only six on the Democratic side, and, uh, side and, and I think three or four of them were on the weekend, on Saturday night or during Saturday night at 10 Super o'clock. Ball. Exactly. Right. Yeah. That's, right. that's exactly so they right. Bury, yeah. They wanted to bury Bernie, and you didn't need to that's have a, right. a, a WikiLeaks uh, release to, to realize that. So, You're absolutely right. Um, uh, You're saying so wrong. now, I'm sorry. No, yeah, that, no, that's I agree. what we have. I agree. 
I fully agree. This is what happens. So in what you're saying, Rick, is that in reality, based on all of these variables that we've all been discussing, Bernie was really the presidential candidate for the Democratic Party. He would have rightfully won had it not been for collusion of the uh, party head with the Hilton, uh, Hilton, um, Hillary Clinton um, campaign. And what did they do? They said, who was it who leaked it? How dull oh, it was the Russians, of course. And in other words, they started to make the whole storyline, the narrative about who done it, rather than what was the content of those bloody emails. And right. as you were saying, Rick, we knew long before that whole thing that the thing was rigged. So Bernie is right when he says it's rigged, and Trump is right when he says it's rigged. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There you go. Oh, we have a lot of work to do, right? Yes, we do. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's the best thing we can do with our time. We could be a little depressed for a few minutes. Now we've got to change the world. There you go. Work together, we've got to solutions and really make a difference. You know, I got to tell you, one of the things since we're talking about, you know, Trump and Bernie and the similarities and dissimilarities and all that, if we could back off from the outrageous, insulting, prejudicial, um, low life speech of Donald Trump, Braston has brought the level of discourse of this whole election cycle into the gutter like maybe never before. Just preposterous, insulting, and offensive on every level for women and anyone of color. It is just horrendous. You know, from the beginning with wall building and all of that. On the level of trade, he and Bernie were utterly identical the TPP, NAFTA, and the rest of them. Hillary, on the other hand, was one of the architects, as was her husband, for whom, with whom she was co-president, basically. They were the, the advocates and the architects of a lot of these agreements that have sunk the U.S. economy for the worker, for the blue-collar worker. So that's just one. So I, on that hand... I feel I was shocked like everybody, of course. I had some bad dreams last night. But when I woke up this morning, honestly, I felt like, um, you know, Ron, I'm thinking a little bit of what you were saying about your alliance with the Republicans. And I feel that that's, uh, you know, I, I think that we ought to be really straight that the two parties share a lot in common. They're Get, they have the same corporate sponsors, and they're way too alike for the sake of any deep, deep sense of change. Um, but Trump, as I said before, is a longtime Democrat. And I'm going to just say this, and I want to hear what everyone has. He is a reality show host who has learned the ways of manipulating media. 
and I think that that's what he's been doing for the entire election cycle, and he's used these prejudicial, bigoted remarks and insults all as ways of getting more media coverage, of creating controversy, and getting the spotlight on himself and stirring up the waters, and he has this inimitable way of reaching that vulnerable part of that white demographic that the article that Kurt was referring to um, was referencing. And he's basically done a profound manipulation on everybody, the people, the media, and I think he goes home almost every night laughing to himself saying, what schmucks. I gave no answer, and they took it as an answer. They dignified the nonsense coming out of my mouth as though it had some meaning. So, bottom line, I'm going to just say what I think, and that is there's actually a lot of hope because he's not that racist bigot. He may be a misogynist but not a racist, a locker, you know, a high school boy, but he's not as bad as he has portrayed himself, and he's actually going to experience a moment of humility. I think it happened last night when he and Melania left the convention, I mean, left where the uh, voting was happening, uh, or, uh, you know, his whole campaign, and they went back to their apartment. I think he was in a state of utter, complete shock of what was really happening, and he needed to gather himself. And he had in a moment, a rare moment, of humility. Out of that he came out this morning and thanked, or actually, I'm sorry, last night, and thanked Hillary Clinton for her dedicated service to our country. And that there's a lot more of an opening than we may think in his possible, you know, in his presidency. Thoughts? Well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I I I I'm not sh- I think no matter what happens, uh I think it's important for us to get to work. So, uh if there's an opening, uh that would be great. And certainly there are certain aspects of what he's talking about that do coincide with supporting uh, people and the planet, which have, have to do with, you know, uh, moving away from the trade agreements, you know, TPP and, and all of that. But in most other areas, I I have a feeling, you know, like environmentally, it's uh, going to be... That scares uh, me. Yeah. That's, that's scary. Um you know that well. You know you can just go down the whole list of things. I'm not. I'm not really uh, looking forward to because I, I wanted to go further, but it's like I feel like it's uh, one step forward and two steps back now with this with this uh, election. So I guess I'm not feeling as optimistic. But uh, you know what? What can we do about it except get to work? That's what I say. Yes. Right. Yeah. I like what, I mean, I think, I mean, I like the fact that you're being very hopeful, Nigel. I love that fact, and I love what you're saying, and I hope (laughs) to some level it is true. My concern with Trump is that he will exploit 
anything. So if he has to exploit racism, sexism, he will do that. And that's a very scary thing because he is an authoritarian um, personality. So if he had a moment of humility, I think that that bodes well for all of us. And I definitely think we need to keep positive thoughts on this issue. Yes, yes. Yeah, and I also also feel that, yeah, uh, we need, uh, we are actually uh, the we consciousness. People like us are the we consciousness, which is so lacking, by the way, not only in Trump, but also in Hillary. I didn't hear enough of this uh, awareness of the relationship to the entire world, the importance of it, the relationship of America to the world which needs to be, you know, stressed to be uh, a large component of our consciousness. So uh, I'm I'm with you. I hope that there is an opening here. And I think, again, it's up to us uh, to provide that that consciousness, that conscience uh, Mm -hmm. that is so necessary in the political process. Yes. I mean, let me let me bring another point up, and I know we're we're heading toward a closing here, but you know, <laughs> it's just all so interesting. Uh, Putin has been demonized, and that's part of the whole Clinton perspective overall. And Trump was um, thought poorly of, you just even by the innuendo that he had some kind of relationship with Putin. I have no idea if he does or not. I have no idea what's true or not. But what is true is that Hillary, on several occasions, spoke about setting up a no-fly zone in Syria. Now, that is code for stay away, Putin, because if one of your planes is found in our no-fly zone, we're going to shoot it down. And that is honestly the beginning of World War III. So I feel that people need to listen to the words of Ralph Nader, who I heard on Gary Knoll's show just the other day say that, you know, Hillary has never come across a weapon system or a war that she did not feel rather, um, you know, sympathetic with. And... I think that we have to realize that for what might be on some local levels and social justice uh, subjects, black-white perhaps, women's issues, children's issues, she's got quite a track record in Honduras, in Libya, Iraq, it's a fairly substantial resume in the direction of militarism. Just want to bring that up here. Mm. Comments? Mitch, Mitch, I have to I have to sign off. I'm really sorry. Um I really appreciate it. Um, Absolutely. Rick, Ron, I just say your last words for us for our reflection in terms of building a better world. Well, um, I think that what we are, in essence, is essentially positive. And it's not something that we're going to have to struggle verbally to create. Our sense of identity, our sense of what we are, if 
fundamentally is essentially positive. And if that were not the case, uh, we'd be trying to convince ourselves uh, for God knows how long. And I think we're, we're on that trajectory, and it's going to act from that point. Beautiful. Dr. Ron Friedman, thanks for being part of our roundtable today. Thank you all. Thank you all. Bye-bye. So appreciate you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye now. Robert, your last comments. Okay. That we have the potential to make transformative change, but a lot of that requires each of us to really begin to look deeply at our own belief systems, look at our own assumptions, our own fears, our own hatreds. The way we transform our society it is simultaneous with our self um, transformation and that's being open and very critical in a positive way where we would look at all of our assumptions we have the ability to rethink how we live in the world how we do our politics how we run our governments and we need Mm -hmm. to begin the process of tapping into that and we are and it's by being and it's by being um, within um, community that we can start to question and we can start to share and we can start to grow. And we're making those steps and we're being shown that we can make these steps for real transformative um, politics. So even though yeah. this is a moment of fear, it's also a very, very, very exciting time. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Okay, good. Thank you so much, Robert Levine, for being part of our Thank you. Table. I and my here. dear friend Rick, I'm so glad. Rick Alfick, yeah. net. Please, yeah. por favor. And, and uh, well, actually, um, one thing that Robert mentioned, I wanted to reinforce this idea: uh, the concept of the We Party. And the We Party is not actually uh, as we propose it, as we the world proposes it, is not a political party, it's more like the uh, the kind of equivalent of the Tea Party, or let's say an alternative to the Tea Party. The Tea Party isn't a real political party, but it had tremendous influence, influence. on politicians. Exactly. Exactly. So imagine, imagine a we party with all the ideas of we consciousness, the common good, and and all of that in a, in a party that that al- creates alignment between all of these transformative grassroots groups and movements. So um, so that's that's what I think we can be working on. And I want to invite everyone listening to this um, to co-create and partner with us with the We campaign at We at we.net to be part of this strategy and platform for unprecedented cooperation and coordination between these grassroots groups and movements in order to create fundamental change and we consciousness through our society. So thank you, Mitchell, for a wonderful discussion. And uh, let's get to work. Thank you. God bless. Thank you both. Thank you all for being part of it today. Thank you. And I love your thoughts, insights, and enthusiasm about a future. And you know what? 
I, I dare say that the three and the four of us would be moving forward on our agendas and our values, no matter who became president. That's right. Exactly right. Exactly right. Okay, exactly good night, right. everyone. Thank you for allowing me to participate. In this. this was a great discussion. I'm so glad, yes, Robert. Thank you. Thanks for being part of it. Thank Rick you. Rick also, thank you. You gave your website out a couple of times, right? One more time. Yeah. We.net, the easiest web address to remember. Easy. Exactly. <laughs> Wonderful. W-E, the network of we. <laughs> That's right. Beautiful. Thank you again, both of you, for being part of this. Okay. And Ron. Thank you. Thank you. And, of course, as well. Absolutely. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. A rich, rich tapestry of thoughts and feelings and perspectives and insights into the election of yesterday, uh, the historic uh, win by Donald Trump, a non-politician who took the country by storm and uh, surprised the heck out of everyone, especially, well, we the people, as well as the pundits who got it completely wrong because they have their own agendas apparently i think that's no big surprise to any of us <clears throat> but it really showed up uh yesterday and of course we didn't even touch on the uh the comey incident of uh doing what he did that's a whole other conversation and really digging down into the weeds which we did some of here today um in general we kept it a little bit more uh overall broader sweeps but we're facing a situation that we know very little about it is novel and in some way i actually feel it is a uh, positive and i say that because i think that trump's words over the course of these past 17 or so months are largely rhetoric and designed to get attention. It's not because he wants to actually build a wall. I just don't believe it. I think it's just a ruse. We'll see, won't we? And uh, I, it's not that we don't have issues. And as the article we've referred to a few times uh, that Kurt Johnson, our dear friend and colleague, brought up on uh, the issues of whiteness and white identity isn't a core issue. I very much believe it does, and that note got reached through this election. Some deep-seated fear. And I also think that these are legitimate conversations of who is it that we live with, who is it that we deal with who are our uh who is in our club so to speak what uh, criteria do we use to determine and define friendships both socially and in business these are legitimate and there are this, this sort of the weeness of all humans and there are distinctions of all sorts and that's what makes the tapestry of the species so rich. I'm all for psychobiodiversity. And I think that that's part of the health of our and the, 
possibility for our adaptation to changing times, including climate change. <clears throat> and we all need each other really profoundly. That's how I really feel. And we need to upgrade our evolutionary perspective, our emotional intelligence, and our willingness to work closely together diplomatically on the level of language and love. I really do. And you may think, oh, shucks, he's talking about love again. Well, I'll tell you the truth. I really do think that it's this kind of attitude of love, of respect, of dignity, and uh, cooperation that has gotten us through as a species in the past, and it's what's going to get us through this election cycle right now. So thanks so much for listening and being part of a better world, because in fact you are. Please do remember as well that we are a 501c3, that is a nonprofit organization, and your donations and contributions, or I'd rather say investments, in a better world of whatever size, from $5 to 50 to 500 to 5,000 or more, uh, is always so appreciated. We live, uh, you know, close to the chest, if you will, and whatever you contribute. And by the way, that includes your work as interns. We do need a video intern and social media intern, as well as administration. So if you are of a bent and you would be interested, we have a lot of fun, and um, we're really making a difference in the world thanks to the overall participation of people like you. If you are interested, please write to me at mjr at abetterworld.net, mjr at abetterworld.net. Or you can call 212-420-0800, 212-420-0800. And please contact me with suggestions and comments and just your appreciation of the show and how it might have influenced your thinking. And make sure to send these links off to your friends and family and business colleagues, etc., so we can have a greater reach across the world, which we do have. And it's... Uh, the larger it gets, the more powerful and effective we can be. So with that, thanks again. Make sure to call, I mean, uh, go to our website and get on the newsletter, which is free at abetterworld.tv if you haven't already done. Thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.